Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. So when we hear the term codependency, we usually think of it as a partner, as someone that you're in a romantic relationship with in terms of relying on that person. But what about in terms of family? We don't really hear that often. So here to sort of explain the idea of codependency in families, no matter what kind of relationship comes in, is Dr. Lauren Pitts. How are you going today? I'm good, Dana. Thank you so much for having me. No, I am so glad to have this conversation with you. And I think we spoke a lot beforehand, before we started recording in terms of your background and my personal connection to the topic. And I think when we hear codependency, we always think of it as a relationship. So it's really nice to sort of see it in a different way and sort of taken as a way that a relationship as a whole sort of takes on. Indeed. You know, when we think about codependency, like you said, it's usually within the context of the intimate relationship. And oftentimes, as we were talking before we started recording, it's when, you know, someone has an addiction or or some other sort of condition that requires additional support um, from their partner. But when you're looking at codependency in a family context, it's how does the the illness or the condition or whatever the the adverse behavior is that's going on that is sort of, for lack of a better way of putting it, sucking in the entire family system into the problematic behavior. And a lot of times when we when we're talking about codependency, people like to scapegoat and say that, you know, the person is the problem. But when you sort of tease it out, you come to find relatively quickly that there's problematic behaviors being demonstrated, not just by the person that the focus is on, but by everybody within the family system. And certainly we're going to tease that out quite a bit during our talk today. Yes, well, I'm very excited. So before we get started, can you tell me about how you sort of got into being a life coach, into counseling, and how you sort of became the CEO of your own company as well? Dana, (laughs) life life has been rough. It it really, truly has been rough. Um, Coming from a very large family that had more than its fair share of trauma and dysfunctional behaviors throughout the family system. You know, I I learned at a very young age that there were just behaviors that I was seeing going on around me that first and foremost were having a negative impact on me, but I also recognized that it was having a negative impact throughout my entire family. And it was it was heartbreaking. It was very, very troubling. 
Uh, I shared with you prior to us starting recording that I am 55 years old. I've never met my biological father. My stepfather um, had some problems that required him to be away from us for several years. And as a result of that, the nuclear family was fractured. You know, my my grandparents were raising me and they had 11 children of their own, my mother being one of them. And it was just what appeared to me from a child's perspective is just endless problems and endless pain and just so much unhappiness. And I was in sixth grade. So that's what, 11 years old when I said to my grandfather, that I wanted to go to college, that I wanted to be able to make a difference in the lives of other people, that I wanted to help people to stop hurting. And, you know, fast forward into high school, you know, having been raised in a Christian family, I was at church one day and I prayed and I said, you know what, God help me to be to my family, my friends, my community and the world what Moses was to the children of Israel. And for those that perhaps aren't familiar with, with the meaning of that story, it was, you know, in the in the King James Version of the Bible, Moses was the person that delivered the children of Israel out of bondage, out of their pain, out of their suffering, out of their trauma. And I prayed that prayer from the innocence and purity of a child's heart. And I knew that I wanted to be able to, if at all possible, stop people from hurting because there were so many times that I felt so alone and and really spent many years suffering in silence. And I just wanted to be a source of, of healing and hope for those that I came into contact with. Well, it definitely sounds throughout your work that you've been able to achieve that for the most part. And that's that's actually an amazing way to sort of take on what you've faced throughout your childhood and sort of make it a positive change for yourself and for other kids who are sort of going through something similar who don't have that support. Yeah, it's, that was important to me. You know, when I look back over my life, I think about how much support I had, but also how much support I didn't have. And when I look comparatively, there was a lot more that I needed, but that I didn't have. You know, my mother was young when she had me and there were adverse circumstances even surrounding my conception and being, you know, born to elderly grandparents. It it was just a lot. It was just so much going on. And I was hurting. I was hurting. I didn't even mention that at maybe... And three, four weeks after my 14th birthday, I was diagnosed with cancer. I was given six months to live. It was just like, I felt like my life was a train wreck (laughs) and there was just nobody really rallying around me to understand the pain and the despair that I was feeling every day of my life. Dana, from a very, very, very young age, I would say I was probably five years old, maybe six, the first time I thought about committing suicide. And I was suicidal from that very young age all the way up until my mid-20s. I just, I couldn't shake the pain. I just couldn't. But I knew that I wanted to be instrumental in helping other people to not hurt. And I, it was just trying to 
figure out how to navigate my own pain, but also be a source of comfort for other people simultaneously. So it was just, it was rough. It was rough. Yeah. Well, that, that seems like an amazing, it seems like a, I mean, if you were to tell me and pitch it to me as a movie, that seems like a such coming of age story in terms of like the amount of resilience that it's sort of brought up mm-hmm. and like that is such it doesn't seem real when you're telling it to me but that's like mm-hmm. pretty much your entire life and that's sort of and just coming into it you being able to now be a doctor and just being able to talk to children and families and individuals just about their own life as well I think it's it's a pretty amazing I honestly could never ever do what you do just because the amount of things that you would be hearing from a lot of other people as well. But honestly, without people like you and people like you sort of having that relatability to the clients, I think that changes, that actually does change it a lot more than just someone sitting there and talking about it. People, family members included, Dana, people have asked me over the years, how, how do you do it? How, you know, how can you just sit and listen to other people's problems all day? And I said, well, it's only the clinical aspect of my life where I have to listen to people's problems all day. The life coaching aspect is a little bit different, right? <laughs> like, like, I mean, people that, that require life coaching support come in with problems too, but oftentimes it's not as deep-seated or as traumatic as people that are coming in for clinical support. But, you know, it's what it all boils down to is, and this might sound strange for me to frame it this way. I had to go through everything that I've been through, Dana, to be who I am today. I had to. If if you change one thing that I went through, it changes the trajectory of my life. And I might not be sitting here today because it would change my story. So in order to be able to connect with my clients in that real humane way, I had to. I had to go through in order to evolve into the woman that you see sitting here with you today. It's it was necessary. It was it was preparation. That's what I like to see it as. It was preparation that equipped me to be the clinician, to be the life coach, to be the educator and the research scholar that I serve my client base today. Oh, that is that is amazing. And while we're on the topic of you, we mm-hmm. love to start this show with a little icebreaker that sort of gets <laughs> to know you a little bit more. It gets to know your hobbies and your interests. And somehow from what I understand about this whole thing is that it is a huge a little bit of an analysis on you as well. So that's a, a lot of my guests come on and they're like, this is something that you ask some, someone if you want to know, if you want to see their behavior. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's a lovely icebreaker to start off with. Um, so when I say these questions, just share the first thing that sort of comes to your mind. Okay. Okay. So the first one is a favorite book of yours. The Queen Within Becoming the Woman God Intended. Okay. I don't think I've heard that one before. It's my autobiography, Dana. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and look, let me tell you, <laughs> the, the reason why it's the first thing that comes to mind is because I literally, um, in, in working with 
the the marketing and, and public uh, publication company, we just came off of book tour. So I literally every day almost I've had all of this back and forth correspondence <laughs> about the book and sales reports and all of this stuff. So it's like sitting on my forehead. Um, but yeah, it's it's my life story. It's my life story. So right now it's just sort of sitting in the forefront because I've had in the past, what, two, three months, I've had to really put a lot, a lot of focus on what's going on with with my life story. Wow. So if there's a way that um, someone would like to find that book and learn more about you, is there a way that they can? Sure. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. Um, it, it's pretty much where books are sold. You can access it through my website, which is my name, drlaurendpitts.com. But literally, if they Google the queen within becoming the woman God intended by Dr. Lauren Pitts, it'll come up and they can okay, order perfect. it if your books are sold. Perfect. Well, I'll have that down in the description below if you're watching on YouTube. So that's a pretty good way to start. Yeah. Um, the next one is a favorite movie of yours. It's an old one, but goody. Uh, Pretty Woman. That's that's anytime anybody yeah. asks me about a movie, that is literally the one that always comes to mind first. It's it's Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. And I love it because it's a rags to riches story. It's, you know, I'm always flocking to the underdog and she was the underdog in the movie that, that came out victorious. So it's it's one of my favorites. Yeah, it's a fun fact. I was never allowed to watch that as a kid. Really? I, no, I watched it once when I was on TV and I I think my parents were watching it with me. They were like, okay, you're not allowed to watch this because the content was a bit, um, a bit much for a kid. But it became my favorite movie from when I was a teenager and onwards. Isn't it awesome? It's like it's yeah. the best story. It's the best yeah. story. Yeah. And they play it off so well as well. That's why I, I can never not watch it. It, it, I've, I've probably seen it, I know, honest to goodness, probably 150, 200 times. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. It's easy I watch it all to the do. <laughs> I do. watch it all the time. Now, the next one is a favorite podcast. A favorite podcast. <sighs> People are going to be like, where is this lady? Where'd you get her from? House Talk Pregame. <laughs> That's my podcast. Okay. That's my podcast. And the reason, look, and I swear, so to the listening audience, this is not Dr. Pitts trying to promote my own podcast. It's not. But the reason why I say it's my favorite is because I have so much fun doing it. I absolutely positively love it. Um, we've been doing the podcast now for five years, but the past three years have been focused on sports and mental health. And anybody that knows me personally knows that I love sports. So I just have a blast recording the, the podcast and, and, you know, solidifying guests week in and week out. And I just have a blast doing it. Yeah, you have no idea how many guests come on and say their own, their own podcast as well. I think like, honestly, I love when you people love what they do and you can see it when they're promoting their own, their own thing. Cause it's not like, okay, they're wanting to promote it. They're literally, it's their, whole life in in interest it really is it it yeah. it, it runs through my it's not work dana it's not no. work it's i'm just not work if you love it yeah and i have fun yeah. i have fun doing it that's the main thing yeah. so the next one is a famous role model that you have 
Oprah Winfrey. Okay. She is just, wow. When I think about how iconic she is, and I want to say I was in high school when she ceased from being a TV newscaster in Baltimore, Maryland, and, and was given the amazing opportunity to host her own talk show. And I remember, because I was a kid, you know, I remember thinking, I want to be like her. I don't want to be her, but she just embodied greatness. She embodied excellence and she, she embodied resilience. You know, she's gone through her own struggles and the, the challenges that she faced being a woman of color back then. And the only woman of color on the air that had her own talk show and, and all of the, the challenges that came with that. But look at her now. <laughs> she I know. Is. She has proved triumphant over every obstacle that has ever been put in front of her. And it just, it just encourages my heart to never give up. Yeah, I think when I was growing up, I saw so much hate on her because of the content that she had, because of the show that she, because she was different and she wasn't what everyone mm -hmm. saw on TV. And I love, I especially love the way that she does her shows now, like the whole Meghan Markle, like the yeah. way that she sort of does those shows and talks about things that, um, and ask questions that people don't usually want to ask because they're scared of like rocking the boat, scared of like changing things. So yeah, I can definitely see how that is. Um, I think she's an inspiration for a lot of people who are in media as well, who really talk about, who want to be that confrontational. Yeah. Asking the hard questions, not not being afraid to address the elephant in the room conversations. She's yes, just exactly. Like, she's she's bringing it whether you want to hear it or not. And that's yeah, the way she doesn't see the elephant, which is what I love. She sees it as just learning about someone. She's like she doesn't right. see the fact that it's too difficult. Right. Yeah. No, no, I mean, nothing has proven too difficult for her. She was like, eh, we're going to have this conversation. If you're uncomfortable, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Now, the last one that I love to end off is a course that you've completed. I just recently um, finished a course for um, Paths for, what was it called? Paths for Minority Women-Owned Businesses. And here in the U.S., it, you can be certified as a minority owned business and that positions you to get um, additional, I don't necessarily want to say preferential, but it positions you to be able to get additional consideration when bidding on contracts for different types of, of work. Um, so I literally just finished taking that course uh, about a week ago, not, not even, it was just last week that I finished taking that course um, in preparation to um, get my, um, to get my agency and myself individually certified as a minority owned business. So yeah, super wow. informative. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's an amazing um, pathway to sort of getting even more experience talking to even more people and mm -hmm. yeah I think I think especially it sort of allows that comfort as well for people also mm -hmm. minorities as well to really find a place that they feel comfortable at yeah. so I think it I does think that's amazing yeah it, it's it's a big deal it's a big deal you know traditionally 
we've experienced barriers that perhaps others have not. And then when you take into consideration having multiple hats under that minority umbrella, um, it, to be able to have that noticed and considered so that, you know, we're not automatically having doors slammed in our face for the federal government and the state government to say, hey, this is an underserved population, which we are, uh, you know, we have to give consideration so that there's a balance in how these contracts are being distributed. I think it, I think it's only fair. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And I think, I think it's also really nice for the clientele as well, for the clientele mm-hmm. to know that there is someone who can understand them. Because the amount of times I sign up for therapy and then I get someone who has completely different life background to me and someone that is very hard to understand and relate to me in a bit that I feel comfortable with is is very hard. It, it is. I tell clients, you know, don't be afraid to test drive therapists just like you test drive a car because everybody is not the appropriate fit and you need to find the right fit if the therapeutic process is going to be effective for you. So you need to interview a therapist much like you would be interviewing someone for a job if you were, you know, the the hiring manager. You have to. You're doing yourself a disservice if you don't. No, exactly. Now, we're talking about family and co-parenting and co-dependency today mm-hmm. and looking into the connection between the two and seeing mm-hmm. just how um, how it sort of fits in to family. Mm-hmm. Before we do that, we love to ask every guest what their definition of a family is, because I know it's not the same for everybody. So what is your personal definition of what you see a family as? So I'm, I'm glad you, you said that people don't see it as the same because my definition of a family is taking into consideration my family of origin, those individuals that I share my DNA with that are a part of my lineage. But I also have people in my life that I consider family because of the bond that I have with them because they provide an emotionally safe space for me to be authentically who I am, because I know that I can trust them, that I can depend on them to be loving and kind and accepting of me, flaws and all. Um, And when you look at, you know, like you said, so many people have these varying definitions of family because their life circumstances warrant them having to define family according to their experience. But for me, it's it's my family of origin and those extended people that in many cases are closer than some of my biological relatives. So, yeah. And no, I think that, I think when you talk about family of origin, that's such a huge family because it's not mm-hmm. something that is very set on, okay, it's someone who has the same sort of experience and sort of life views. Mm-hmm. Like everyone, every time I have a guest on and we talk about it, they're always saying that it's a connection to something and it can be a connection mm-hmm. to a person. It can be a connection to, I've had people talk about a connection to a country as well because mm-hmm. it's their whole life that's sort of built who they yeah. are and everything is a part of who they are, whether they like it or not. 
So, no, I think I think I love the idea of having it sort of such a broad definition for everybody. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it's important to have a broad definition. And, I, and I'm so glad that you made mention of culture because, you know, one of the I shared with you prior to um, us starting recording that my family is really, really big, I'm like massive on the maternal side of my family. Um, there's six generations of us living. When my grandmother passed away in 2019, she was a hundred and a half years old. She was the oldest living member from that earliest generation that, that I remember. Um, and now I have one aunt remaining. But in addition to that, Dana, I found out in January of 2022, um, I had shared with you prior to us uh, coming on air that at 55, I've never met my biological father. Well, in January of 2022, um, members of the paternal side of my family actually found me. And I found out that I am the oldest girl, don't gasp and fall out of your chair, but I am the oldest girl of 22 children. But the interesting part about that is though those individuals are, you know, I share DNA with them and they are part of my lineage and part of my my cultural heritage, I don't feel like they're my family because I've literally spent my entire life not having an intimate connection to the Caribbean side of my family. So I, I, I don't know the Jamaican members of my family. And the irony is that when I did live in the Caribbean, I lived in Barbados and I actually felt at home. I feel more at home in Barbados than I ever have in the United States, but I'm half Jamaican. How do you explain that? I think that it goes to the connection and and the bond that you form with people. I think that that's paramount in, in how we define family. Yes, no, I, I completely agree. And I think when it comes to the position that a family holds, and I think, mm-hmm. I think there's a difference between family and lineage. And mm-hmm. there is a, for me, I always see it as completely different because I have family all over the country. I have mm-hmm. family in Malaysia, I have family in mm-hmm. New Zealand and I have family in Australia as well. And mm-hmm. I I don't see, I see lineage as something that I'm biologically sort of attached to, mm-hmm. but I don't see a lot of them as family. Mm-hmm. Um, especially as I get older and I develop my own sense of what family is, yeah. Yeah. I don't feel that connection to them as I, as I think I'm supposed to. Yeah. So it's a very interesting thing. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it, it makes sense that, and I agree with you, I'm, I'm actually in the same position. I have individuals that are not blood relatives that I'm closer to than some of my biological family members, you know, certainly on the, the biological paternal side of my family, I have no connection with them at all. And then even on my mother's side of the family, I, mean, I know who they are and they know who I am, but I'm I'm just not close to them. And, and we are a very close knit family. We we absolutely are. But I I have family members that you see them at a funeral, you see them maybe at a wedding, depending on how many people are invited. 
I haven't been to a family reunion in goodness gracious, probably 25 years. So where does that leave you? You know, you have a bunch of people that you're related to that don't know each other intimately. And I think that makes all the difference in the world with that connection. Yeah, no, exactly. So do you think that it the full, whole idea of family, do you think that it still holds the same importance as, as it used to probably 10, 20 years ago? I think in certain cultures it does. I think, you know, in certain cultures, family is everything. You know, within the African American culture, within the the Caribbean, various Caribbean cultures, you know, family is the the major pillar of existence within the community. Um, unfortunately, though, so many of the nuclear families are fractured. And the extended families are in pretty bad shape too. So in in many ways, it's it's a foundational pillar, but it's a foundational pillar that has a lot of cracks in it. Um, and I think, you know, when I look at that within the context of behavioral mental health, I think that that's part of the reason why people are suffering to the degree that they are because, you know, like you said, what the family system looked like decades ago, even centuries ago, is very, very different than what it looks like now. And it's families are falling apart. They're falling apart at, at record numbers in, in many cultures. And, it, and it's unfortunate because it's, it's causing a lot of problems that, that people are having a difficult time dealing with. And now talking about family codependency, Mm-hmm. Um, we defined codependency a little bit earlier on the show and sort of talked mm-hmm. about how it can be seen as. So how would you define family codependency? I define family codependency as this this woven, you know, almost see it as like a latch hook rug <laughs> that has so much... Um, I'm, I'm, I'm always careful to use the word dysfunction, Dana, because one of my professors told us in grad school that it's only dysfunctional to us when we're on the outside looking in, but it's quite functional to, to the people that are navigating that space every day. Yeah. But when you look at how the family system is experiencing that ripple effect of whatever the problematic behaviors are, if you could just envision dropping ink, for example, into a puddle of water and just how it disperses and will turn the water, whatever color the ink was that you dropped into it. I think that's what codependency looks like in the family system. It starts out as a drop, i.e., you know, maybe the onset of a particular behavior or a medical condition or a mental health disorder or some sort of adverse behavior that is far reaching and literally permeates the entire family system to the point that we begin to see the family functioning in ways that are just not healthy for anybody involved. Mm -hmm. And I think like, that's a huge thing when you talk about healthy relationships Mm -hmm. and healthy, because the whole idea of a healthy family is so, it's so hard to sort of see what a healthy family is supposed to look like, Mm -hmm. because there are so many families that are healthy, but they have no communication. 
but there are some right. families who are healthy and have complete utter and open communication and it's so mm -hmm. hard to see what you would see as a like you said dysfunctional and functional mm -hmm. relationships is something that is very difficult to sort of pat down because nuclear mm -hmm. families could be the unhealthiest of relationships Say well that again yeah <laughs> It's, it's crazy the fact that that's like we focus so much on the nuclear family and I've spoken about this so much on the show mm -hmm. in terms of um, like my whole family, like there's a mother, a father, mm -hmm. me and my sister. And then there's the whole idea of um, it looks so dysfunctional. When I describe it to my friends as to how we've grown up and how the sort of environment mm -hmm. is, it seems so dysfunctional to everyone else. Mm -hmm. But for me, we're trying to make it functional and it's a try to mm -hmm. do every single day. <laughs> well, you are functional. You and, and, and that's in essence what our professor was saying is that it's only dysfunctional to people on the outside looking in. But for those that are a part of the family system, that's their normal. So it's not dysfunctional to them. Hence why when you try to interject <laughs> these functional behaviors into a family system, it's difficult for people to make those necessary behavior modifications because it's a foreign concept to them. They are like if people are used to problem solving and resolving conflict by screaming, yelling, hooping, hollering, cussing and fussing. And, the, and people have said to me, Dana, Dr. Pitts, they only listen to me when I'm screaming. What? You know, to to me and you were like, uh, no, <laughs> that's not the way to do that. But that really is the way some people function and they don't realize that there are more appropriate, we don't have to say healthy, there are more appropriate ways to solve problems and to resolve conflict, but they're like, no, it's not. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree with you. I think there are so many ways that a family like the way that I grew up, especially like we always saw the minute that you, I mean, I grew up in an Asian family. So the minute that they gave you the look, the minute that's when you knew you were in trouble. But when I went to like my friends who are completely white, they would, everyone was coddled. And I was like, how do you grow up like this? Like this right. feels so different. And it, it looks so, but you could see the fact that they were yelling, that they were always like yelling at each other. For me, my mom just gave me the look. She didn't have to yell. So that was a new thing for me. And my dad is um, white and he's Western. So his way of parenting was completely different to my mom's way of parenting. So mm -hmm. there were so many different dynamics that sort of worked in different ways that set a term of how we understood communication as well, which is part of a part of it. You know, you, you're absolutely right. And, and I'm sitting here giggling because the look, man, the look, <laughs> that, that is definitely something that I was exposed to growing up to the look. My mom was a yeller though. She, she, even now she's 76 years old Dan, and she still yells. I'm like, oh my God, mom, please stop yelling. She's still a yeller, but the look, it's like the look of death, right? Like they don't even have to say anything necessarily but you get that look. And my grandmother was the same way. But then when you take into consideration that 
for a variety of reasons, far too many for us to sort of unpack in, in this one podcast, but there's so many different reasons why people communicate the way they do. And they don't necessarily see it as dysfunctional, but this is what I say. If how you're communicating, how you're solving problems, resolving conflict, is it adversely impacting how people function outside of the home? And if it's adversely impacting how people function outside of the home, we need to take a look at that. So in that example that you gave about how your father parented different than your mother, right? Or when you were visiting Caucasian friends. Now, hypothetically, you go into somebody's house that completely handles things differently than you do, and you give them the death look. They're going to say, Danny, what's wrong? Why are you looking at me like that? Right? They don't know what that means. They don't yeah, know what it exactly. means because they actually open their mouth and have a conversation without shouting, without screaming, without belittling, degrading, demeaning. They actually are focused on healthy resolution. So how are you feeling? What are you going through right now? Let's talk about it. Lower your voice. We don't have to shout. And people that grew up in environments completely different than that are like, what's wrong with that? (laughs) Why is everybody so calm? Aren't you guys mad? (laughs) It's a foreign concept. No, exactly. And I think it's so it's so strange as to how that fits in with codependency as well, because mm-hmm. you rely on that certain way of being of being raised. And I think yeah. the codependency is that when you jump from I mean, codependency, like I think we spoke about what family codependency is, but mm-hmm. what does a codependent family really, really look like in terms of what you've seen? <laughs> well, <laughs> how much time? Do you have? Now, when when I when I see codependent families, I see things like you know what we call helicopter parents, overbearing, domineering, controlling. You know, people telling you what you need to do. There's what we call clinically a low self differentiation, meaning that you know the only good ideas you have are the ones that somebody else gave you. (laughs) You're apprehensive about expressing your opinion. People don't feel comfortable sharing their thoughts and feelings about things. You may see a lot of people pleasing going on. Um, You may see uh, family members that are feeling devalued or, or underappreciated, a lot of distrust, a lot of fear, Dana. There's a lot of fear in in codependent families. People are afraid to be authentically who they are out of fear of abandonment, fear of rejection, fear of failure. And and it shows up in different levels of intensity dependent upon how codependent the family system is. Mm -hmm. So what's the the normal relationship between a codependent family family for example like is it the child sort of codependent on the parent or is it the other way in terms of like how the dynamics would work it can be any of those combinations you know i've had clients that i've worked with over the years dana where the parents were so dependent 
on the child for emotional support, for spiritual support, for financial support, that they didn't want the child to leave home. They came up with every excuse under the sun as to why the child couldn't go away to college or why the child couldn't move out or, you know, why the child couldn't date. Anything and everything that the parent can do to control, manipulate, and dominate the child's life's trajectory, the parent will do. But the flip side of that is you see that among children, you know, with their in the sibling relationships and the parent-child relationship too. Of course, you see it among intimate partners where people are looking to other family members to solve their problems. People are what I call putting on the superhero cape and trying to be all things to everybody. You know, people want to be the hero. They want to be the person that fixes everything for everybody. And then they whine, moan, groan, and complain about it. You know, you, you see it in spouses, you know, even when the, the relationship, um, it's like, how do I want to describe it? So you, it's, it's, it's intertwined because you'll see codependent parents, they're codependent on each other, but then you'll see, say, for example, the mom has a codependent relationship with the son, a mama's boy. You see the dad has a codependent relationship with the daughter, a daddy's girl, but the parents have a codependent relationship too. And then the siblings or in, I'll give you a real life example. So in my own family, I have relatives that are the same age, but they're not siblings. But the the attitude of the family is, oh, well, if you're doing something for this one, you have to do it for the other one. And this one can't go somewhere unless you take the other ones too. Why? That you're It's a breeding ground for codependency. You're communicating to these children that are 11, that are 10, 11, and 12 years old, that they can't do anything without the other person being glued to their hip. And they're different, you know, you, you've got boys and girls. So it's like, what does that look like? A mess. It's a mess. Yeah. So the codependent relationship can exist in virtually any type of relationship dynamic. You can even see it in working relationships, Dana. No, I think I th- it's amazing just how how far you can take it in terms mm-hmm. of when you look at two people, you're like, okay, mm-hmm. There is such a connection there. And I think with me, especially growing up, there's such a, there was such a reliance on that emotional support from, because especially when my parents were very young when they got married and had started having kids. So they just started developing their own emotional intelligence and started mm-hmm. understanding mm-hmm. what they needed. But yeah. because, um, and I think I've spoken about this with my mom as well, like in terms of us growing up, because she was really young, she was about 22 when she had me. And it was such a, and she was home alone. She was a stay at home mom, that whole scenario. And she didn't have a lot of people to talk to because she's also dealing with a four-year-old and, and my younger sister. So there was that huge sort of emotional reliance that, okay, I'm going to spend all my time on you. And there's going to be that, I mean, there was bound to be that codependency Mm-hmm. Um, for that as well. But in terms of like looking at that in general, what are some of the things that sort of come up for the other person who realizes they are being in that codependency relationship? Mm-hmm. You'll see guilt. 
you'll see anger. You'll see um, sometimes even shame or, or embarrassment. You'll see issues with around boundary setting. You'll see the, that more intense um, need for people pleasing because think of codependency within the family system as this huge room full of eggshells. Everybody's walking on eggshells. Everybody is walking on eggshells because nobody wants to be the person to make waves. Nobody wants to be the person to cause a ripple in the relationship. So that person that I'll give it to you from both perspectives. So the person that is seen as the problem, right? They're the person that's that's positioned to do a lot of manipulating. Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give the example. That I have. Well, you know, you know that I have a drinking problem. You know that I have an alcohol problem. And if it wasn't for you, if you weren't yelling at me all the time, Dana, I wouldn't even be tempted to drink or do drugs. But you just get on my nerves so bad that I just have to have a drink so that I can just drown out all of your constant nagging. Those are the types of things that somebody that is viewed as the problem would say, right? The flip side of it is the family member that's the victim, right? How can you do this to me? Why do you keep doing this to your mother? What are you thinking? You say that you love us and we do everything for you. We've given you everything. And this is the way you show your appreciation. This is the way you show your gratitude. You're breaking your mother's heart. You're breaking your father's heart. You're breaking your sister's heart. You're you're just ungrateful. And it's, can't you just say it? It's, 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 it's an F5 tornado and it's just yes. more than out of control. It's that core negative interaction pattern that we see and it's fire and gasoline and everybody's feeding it because everybody is engaging in clinically what we call these maladaptive behaviors that keep the vicious cycle of codependency going. And I think especially in terms of, I think in a way, for me, what I understand about that is that it's it's victim blaming. It's a cycle of like, oh, you're the problem. No, you're the problem and back and forth. And yep. I've had this discussion, I think as an adult, I think I had more of a discussion with my family on that as well, especially mm-hmm. now I've done this show, I'm coming on as kind of an expert on what to talk to my family about during discussions. Mm-hmm. So that whole idea of codependency, I think it's hard to, I think, not blame a person who put you through that sort of emotional turmoil of, okay, I need to be, make sure that I'm always there for her, make sure that I'm always around because if I'm not around, she's not going to have anything to do and it's going to be, okay, I can't build my own life. And that sort of stabilizes your own need for building your own life as well. So how do you have that conversation or how do you even realize that that's something that you need to talk about? Dana, you you just said a mouthful and you just put your (laughs) finger on the pulse of one of the major issues within a codependent family, right? So as a clinician, one of the things that I have to unpack with the family is what are you getting out of this, right? It, don't look at what you're doing wrong. Look at why you're doing it. Why do you have to be the person that's around so that 
she has something to do. Who said that you have to be the caretaker? Why did you take on that role? And you have to go deep and have some very vulnerable and transparent conversations with yourself as the individual. Each family member does. What are you getting from being the victim? What are you getting from being the martyr? What are you getting from being the hero? What are you getting from being the the person that's being scapegoated? There's roles in the family, in the codependent family that everybody takes on. And part of being able to get to the root of the problem and understand how to unpack it so that interventions can be put in place is people have to be able to identify what role they're playing because everybody's culpable in a codependent family, Dana. Everybody. And you have to be willing to say, oh, wait, am I the enabler? Am I the, you know, am I the pot star? Am I the, am I the victim? And, and sometimes, depending on what's going on, those roles may be fluid. You know, they, they may be interchangeable depending on whatever it is that's going on at any given time. And people have to be put in a position where that can be unpacked and it can be processed with members of the family. What are you getting out of being codependent? Why is this working for you, even though it's really not? And that's, that's the hard questions. People are like, ah. but we have to ask. Yeah. No, yeah. I know. Like, those seem like such a difficult, I mean, it was a difficult thing to even process when you even mentioned mm-hmm. it just then. I think my, my uh, eyes sort of teared up a, a tiny, tiny bit just in terms of like the questions that, um, that you're sort of forcing yourself to ask. You're sort of forcing yourself to look into it a bit more. And that's such a, it's especially when you see it growing up and you see, okay, there's so many things that I should have done. But then again, you're a child. Like there's such a huge, like, okay, this is the person that you're meant to look up to, but it's more like they're looking up to you rather than you're really learning anything from them. So it's a very, it's a very intimate question to mm-hmm. dive into in your own in your own head, even before you even mouth it out. Like the minute you ask it, why do you have to be the uh, the entertainer? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why I have to be. <laughs> but but getting to the root of it, and you'll hear me say this frequently, being able to put your finger on the pulse of your why is going to be instrumental in helping you to get free from codependency. You have to be able to look in the mirror, Dana. If you Mm -hmm. cannot look in the mirror, how will you ever be able to find the resolve? It's like we can't heal what we don't uncover. And in order to uncover it, people have to be willing to be honest. And that is very, very hard for people to do. It's easier to blame. It's easier to scapegoat. It's easier to harbor resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness when in actuality, if the family system is ever going to be healthy, everybody involved has to take responsibility and accountability for their contribution. They have to. No, that's a, that's a very, it's a very hard question to sort of even just dive into and, um, 
even just when we're explaining it, there's such a huge dynamic that can sort of cause a ripple in everyone's way of thinking in terms of what we see yeah. as, I mean, we re I think in the last half hour, we pre pretty much redefined what codependency is in a lot of people's mm -hmm. minds in terms of how mm -hmm. to see what codependency is. Yeah. Um, now looking into some of the practice and habits mm -hmm. and sort of some of the things that you would recommend, mm -hmm. What's a practice that you would recommend to address and even hopefully break the cycle of codependency within a family system? So one of the first things that I do when I'm treating family systems with codependency is I encourage folks to read. Um, it's an amazing book. It's called Codependent No More by Melody Beatty. It's Codependent No More by Melody Beatty. And it is absolutely, positively a phenomenal read. It's an accountability read, but it can be really, truly instrumental in helping people to better understand codependency, which is the, the second thing that I want to put on folks' radar. You have to educate yourself. You have to know, Dana, what you're up against. What is it? that's going on in the family system? Is it addiction? Is it a medical condition? A, a condition? Is it a mental health disorder? Is it something else? But whatever it is, you have to be able to sort of sort things out and get some clarity on what it is that's really going on. And you, you have to get help, you know, one of the things that people often ask, and it was actually one of the questions that was presented in, in preparation for, for today's show, is that can families um, sort of help themselves when they realize that they're codependent? To a degree, but I would, I won't say I'd be lying, but I wouldn't I wouldn't feel whole, wholly confident in advising any family to try to resolve it on their own. And the reason why is because there's so many moving parts, Dana, when it comes to codependency in a family system. And you, you can't be counselor and family member at the same time. And even as clinicians, we are taught to not provide therapeutic services for our family. So you need to be able to seek professional help in order to be able to unpack what it is that's going on, to have a clear understanding, to be able to make sure each person understands the role that they play in the codependency and why they're playing that role. They need to be able to develop degrees of acceptance and know that, you know what? The only person I can control in this life is me. I have no control over you, Dana. I can't fix you. You have to be willing to do the self-work to fix yourself. Each person has to take responsibility and accountability for their own behaviors and for their own contribution to the system. And then the other part of that too, and this might sound really strange, I strongly encourage people to learn how to normalize their emotional experiences. And I say, well, Dr. Pitts, what do you, what do you mean by that? Does he look on your face like, Dr. Pitts, what do you mean yeah. by that? 
I have an activity that I do with my clients, Dana, where I literally, for my virtual clients, I pull up a, it's like a two or three page document and has virtually every emotion and feeling that anybody could ever possibly experience in their life. And I literally take them through the entire document and I say, tell me if you have never experienced any of these feelings. And literally in all the years that I've been doing this work, I kid you not, I've had less than 10 clients that have said, oh, well, I didn't, I've never experienced this or that. Most people have experienced at some point in time in their lives, every single solitary emotion that there is to experience in mankind. So if that's the case, and oh, by the way, you're still sitting here talking to me. People treat, and I say this respectfully, people treat their emotional experiences, Dana, like they're terrorists. They're not, unless you decide that they should be. Life is going to happen to all of us, and all we have to do is keep living. (laughs) We're going to go through emotional experiences, good ones, bad ones, and different ones. You're going to go through them. Everybody has the ability to choose operative word there being choose, to choose to not surrender their power and their sense of self to their emotional experiences. Confront them. They can't destroy you unless you choose that they should. Face them head on. Deal with them. With help. And move forward. Rather than choosing to remain ensnared, minimal to no emotional intelligence, EQ in the toilet. It doesn't have to be that way, Dana. Part of healing is a choice. People have to choose to heal. And it's a hard choice for some. But for others, it's like, you know what? This pain is great enough that I realize, you know what? I think I'm going to (laughs) heal. And they start the journey on purpose. And with the sort of practices that you go through to sort of break that cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the challenges that sort of come about when you are really ready to confront that, even that whole ideology that you are codependent or that someone is codependent to you? Fear. Fear and more fear, Dana. People, just just catch this visual, have a big circle And you're going to draw a stick figure, Dana, in that circle. And that circle represents your comfort zone. But in that comfort zone with you, Dana, is discomfort, dis-ease, discontent, and angst. And the outer perimeter of your uncomfortable comfort zone is fear and anxiety. Beyond that wall is infinite possibilities. Now, is there some pain out there too? Sure. Is there some discomfort out there too? Sure. Are there circumstances beyond your control? Sure. But guess what? We're going to normalize these emotional experiences. We're going to take back our control from them. And we are not going to allow the fear to keep us paralyzed. We are going to do, be, have, give, create, and experience life Even if we're going afraid, Dana, even if we're going afraid, we're going to go anyway. 
So how does this practice sort of impact how you see family and sort of how you also see life as as a whole? Yeah, you know, I really, I really feel like, you know, putting this practice in place will increase one's ability to effectively set healthier standards for how they want and need to be treated. One of the issues that we see in codependent families is these blurred or, or porous boundaries. And in order for the family system to sort of make this progression and this evolution to a healthier existence, there has to be boundaries in place. There have to be uh, systems and measures put in place that change the relationship dynamic within the family system. I tell people, commit to wellness unapologetically, right? So you choose as an individual to remove yourself from that codependent equation. You don't have to be a part of the problem. You can be a part of the solution. And what that solution looks like is you not being the victim, you seeing yourself as victorious rather than being the victim, taking your power back from the family system, from the situations and circumstances and and disorders and conditions that have robbed each individual of their power to be themselves authentically. Putting in that effort, Dana, to work for each individual to work on their sense of self, to recognize that the family system is eroded, but each person's sense of self can be eroded too. So you have to be willing for each person to do the individual work, right? In order for the family system to be healthier and to be able to function in more pro-social ways. If if each person does their part, or, or the way that I like to explain it to my clients is this, if you take the relationships out of the equation and each person commits and truly decides to look in the mirror and you wake up tomorrow with it purposed in your heart to be a better version of yourself tomorrow than you were today, and you wake up with that attitude, that commitment, and that behavior modification every day, Dana, won't the family system be stronger if each person does that? Of course Mm -hmm. it will. Of course it will. But it starts with each piece of the family puzzle, if you will, doing their part to make sure their individual contribution is healthy. And you got to start. And it's just mm-hmm. one decision, one situation, one circumstance, one problem, one conflict at a time. Each person taking responsibility for themselves. And now going into some of the questions from the audience, there have been a few that sort of very similar to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a couple that I think really do fit in really well with what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So the first one is, how do families benefit from learning and practicing new coping skills and self-care strategies as well through family therapy when addressing that codependent behavior? 
Ooh, you said the magic word. Self-care is such a critical element to um, terminating the codependency relationship dynamic, right? Because it, it speaks to what I said about each person doing their part. If un- unselfishly, if I'm focusing on my own healing trajectory rather than trying to heal and fix you, and you're focusing on trying to heal you rather than trying to heal and fix me, then Mm -hmm. it proves beneficial to everybody, right? So you have to be willing to prioritize self-care. And I'm sorry, what was the the first part of the question that you asked? Can you repeat that again for me? Um, what What do families benefit from learning and practicing new coping skills. Mm -hmm. So thank you. So the new coping skills are, it's, it's placing the emphasis on unlearning the, the unhealthy coping skills and relearning and replacing those old coping skills with new coping skills, the more pro-social skills, the, the, the behaviors, the attitudes, the mindsets, that help people to engage in behavior that breathes life into the family system rather than depleting the family system. It's really important to remember, Dana, that what you feed grows. Mm -hmm. So are you feeding negativity that's going to continue to erode the family system? Or are you going to modify those coping skills, adopt healthier coping mechanisms that can help to strengthen the family system and be instrumental in helping each person function in a much healthier, positive and productive way that ultimately benefits the entire family system? Mm -hmm. The next one is talking about sibling relationships Mm -hmm. and talking about how that sort of fits into the family dynamic. Mm-hmm. So it sort of goes into a story. It's saying you're talking about the oldest child and the youngest child, mm-hmm. and somehow they grew up. Even though they grew up with the same set of parents, the same way, the same set of rules, somehow the way that they are both treated are different, and then one's treated more as the therapist of the parents, and then whilst one is sort of the emotionally detached from the rest of the family. So Mm -hmm. what kind of dynamic structure, is that a sort of a codependent dynamic structure or is that sort of something that is completely different? It, it, to me, it sounds like the codependency is between the child that's, so you said the child that's posing as the therapist, we call that the parentified child. When we talk Mm -hmm. about parentification, parentification is when the role is reversed, where the child is in essence, serving in the parental role and the parent has become more like the child. The child that is emotionally detached, i.e. has a diminished EQ, emotional intelligence, the way that it was explained, it doesn't sound like there's a codependent relationship between the siblings. It sounds like the codependent relationship is between the parentified child and the parents. And in that case, we you have to restructure the family structure. You, you know, you have to put those roles back in the, the hierarchical, hierarchical order that they're supposed to be in. And a big part of that is the, that amazing word, boundaries, <laughs> right? That, that therapeutic child, that child that's parentified has to take a step back 
and put systems and measures in place, including healthy boundaries that require parents to be parents and not take ownership of that role. It goes back to what we said a few moments ago. Each family member has to know what their role is. And if that child, that parentified child is serving as the the parent's therapist, that's a no-no. They need to send their Mm -hmm. parents to a therapist (laughs) and go back to being the the adult or the minor child, whatever their age they are. But it's not their responsibility to be their parent's therapist at all. Mm -hmm. No, that, I think... That's exactly why I asked it, because I think that's something that really needs to be um, spoken about in terms of sort of Mm -hmm. the relationships that really fits in to a Mm -hmm. family dynamic. And it fits in perfectly Mm -hmm. with what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, The last section of the show is an open mic. So it gets you to talk about something that you're passionate about. It doesn't have to be related to this topic at all. It can be something that you want to share with the audience directly. So this gives you the space to talk to the camera, talk to the audience and share what is what something that you're passionate about. So interestingly enough, without you even knowing what I was going to say, you just provided a great segue when you were talking about the parent child relationship. I am extremely, extremely passionate about parenting. And I as I said in the very beginning of the show, because there was support that I felt like I needed and I didn't get, I'm I'm a strong, strong advocate for children. Um, I don't work with children anymore, but, and that's a, a whole different story as to why I stopped working with children. But I think, Dana, parents need to take responsibility and accountability for their own emotional and traumatic baggage. So oftentimes we see what clinically we call a multi-generational transmission process. Um, and we'll see a, a process that we call triangulation where you know you have generation after generation after generation. That's the multi-generational transmission process where the dysfunction exists in the family. It's not getting unpacked. It's not getting addressed. People are sweeping things under the rug. They're not taking care of healing the wounds that have been inflicted throughout the family system. And it passes on from one generation to the next. And Dana, with each generation, if nobody does anything about it, it just keeps getting exponentially worse. That's a problem. From birth to 17 years of age, children are at the mercy of their parents. Children learn how to form healthy attachments from their parents or their primary caregivers. Children learn how to solve problems and to resolve conflict and how to relate. People learn how, children learn how to love themselves based upon their relationship with their parents or primary caregivers. Children learn what it means to be emotionally safe or unsafe based upon the the home environment and the family system. If I may, within the African-American community, so many of our nuclear families, Dana, are in just sheer shambles and distress because the nuclear family has been eroded beyond measure. The the prison population in the U.S., we know that we have one of the worst prison systems in the world. 
and the larger percentage of the prison population in the U.S. is African-American men, then Latinos, then whatever next and like Caucasian are at the, you know, are at the bottom of the ring. So there's a lot of homes, Dana, that have paternal absence and that's a problem. And so you have a lot of women that are raising children by themselves. There's a lot of bitterness and resentment and trauma and just endless drama and people just are not getting the help. I don't know about in Australia, but here in the U.S., there is a stigma around mental health, period, particularly within the African-American community. So people are just more of the same, more of the same. And what I say to parents is give your children a fighting chance. Give them a fighting chance to have a healthier, happy, more fulfilling and sustainable life than perhaps you had because of the adverse childhood experiences that you went through. Be a part of your child's healing and hope trajectory. Don't be the person that is inflicting pain upon them. Don't be the person that's the source of their trauma. Life is hard enough as it is. Home is supposed to be your safe haven. It's supposed to be your safe place. And if you can't be safe with your own parents, with your own family, Dana, that's a problem. And unfortunately, in this global society that we live in, as we said in the beginning of the show, families aren't what they used to be. And children are suffering gravely because of the breakdown in our nuclear families all over the world. And it's it's heart-wrenching to me. It's heart-wrenching. I, I need folks to break the cycle. I need them to break the cycle of dysfunction and to give their children a fighting chance to not be a walking mental health issue. And I think you touched on something that I'm really passionate about as well, which is sort of people acknowledging the fact that they do need help. Yeah. And I think yeah. I think that comes with a lot of it. Like a lot of people just aren't willing to even acknowledge the fact that they are that they did face some trauma or that they did face something from their own family that came into their own parenting and did create a cycle that generations can't figure out why it even exists. Yeah. It's people sweep it under the rug. If I act like it didn't happen, it'll go away. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. Mental health issues can start as something very, very minuscule. And if it goes untreated, it's just like a cancer. It will eat you up from the inside out and destroy your life. You have to treat it. You have to. You have to unpack it. You have to uncover it. You have to be willing to acknowledge that there has been problems. I spent part of my career as a clinician. I was in corrections for a while. And after that, I was in, uh, I was a therapist for inpatient drug and alcohol. And one of the things I used to tell my patients during group sessions is secrets keep you sick. You can't heal what you won't uncover. It doesn't go away. You think that just because you're not talking about it, it's not there. It is there. It's manifesting itself in a wealth of other unhealthy ways. 
physical issues, mental issues, substance abuse issues, anger management issues, depression, the list goes on and on and on, Dana. And people act like, oh, I'm not going to worry about it. No, you're not externally worried about it, but you've internalized all of that pain, all of that violation, all of that sickness, and it's impacting every aspect of your life adversely. Every aspect of it, every domain is being impacted by untreated trauma and mental health issues. And we see it all day, every day. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a, it's such a nice message to end the show with and to Mm -hmm. sort of talk about the fact that you should really just try to find some sort of way that even trauma that you don't even know you had is something that you should still talk about. And I think everyone in this generation should at least go to one or two therapy sessions, even just to unlock something that you didn't even realize could affect you. Um, So if there's a way that audience members would like to talk to you a little bit more or even um, ask questions that I probably have missed out on asking, Mm -hmm. is there a way that they are able to get into touch with you? Absolutely. They can email me at Lauren, L-A-U-R-E-N, at DrLaurenDPitts.com. Or you can go to my website, www.DrLaurenDPitts.com, and you can fill out the contact me form. Um, I know that time zone is different, but as I stated, I have a podcast that is live on Zoom every Saturday, New York City East Coast time from 11 a.m. to 12 noon. You can register to be a part of the virtual audience for the show. Um, I mean, I'm everywhere. (laughs) I'm I'm everywhere. So people, you know, I tell people, Google me, you'll find me. Um, But yeah, the the quickest ways to reach me would be through the website, um, filling out the contact me form or just in in shooting me a direct email. I I respond to the emails myself. I don't have somebody responding for me. So I do respond to all of the emails myself. And and my turnaround time is relatively short. Usually within a couple of hours, I respond to emails. Oh, that's that's amazing. And I'll definitely have all that information down for the audience uh, in the description mm-hmm. box if you're watching on YouTube. So then mm-hmm. there's that accessibility as well, which makes it easy to easy connect to connect with Lauren. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much, Lauren, for joining me on the show today thank and you for and for even just redefining what codependency is to us. I think we all learned a lot about the different ways that codependency can turn up. So that, that is amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it, I mean, we need to know. Knowledge is power, right? As cliche as it is, it's, it's the truth. Um, what you don't know can hurt you. So it is extremely important for people to educate themselves about codependency. And as I stated before, to really get a much clearer understanding of what it is they're up against. But, but no, first and foremost, they have to educate themselves so that they have a much clearer perspective of what they're going through so that they can better understand how to navigate the healing trajectory that they need to, to take part in. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's amazing. I can't, hopefully we get to have you on for another episode and we can talk about some other aspects that sort of come in on a family situation as well. I'd love that. 
I'd love that anytime. Okay. Like, you, know, you know how to get in touch with me now. <laughs> yes. And, and you reply really quickly. So that makes it easy as well. <laughs> I told you I have my turnaround time. Because I'm sitting at this computer all the time, Dana. <laughs> sitting here all the time. So, yeah, it's good. I would love that. All right. So thank you guys so much for listening. And I will see you guys in the next episode. You've been listening to All Together, the Family Science Insights podcast, produced by Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.